Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're studying Chapter 4 of Volume 1. The Volume 1 of this book series is titled Developing a Life Practice, The Path that Leads to Enlightenment. And over this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to be sharing with you the path to enlightenment. Today we're going to be talking about the three universal truths and the four noble truths to help you establish right view. This is going to help you to have a breakthrough to understanding what's causing your discontent feelings so that then you can actually eliminate them. If you've learned this before with me, this is a great opportunity to revisit it and make sure that you really understand it. If you've never actually studied the four noble truths with me, this will be a great opportunity for you to finally have this breakthrough to being able to understand what's causing the mind to be discontent so that then you can actually solve your problem of the anger, the sadness, the frustration, and all these other discontent feelings. Because in four simple statements, you're going to be able to see what the problem in the unenlightened mind is, the cause of that problem, the elimination, and the path forward. So welcome to all of you guys, whether you've been joining regularly or you're joining for the first time, welcome to our class. As we go today, you're welcome to ask any and all questions. I'm going to be pausing at different times to open up to questions. And if you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put those into the comment section. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow up questions directly. So thank you all for being here. I'm going to share some visual aids to be able to help me share the teachings with you guys. Okay. So the first thing to understand as it relates to getting onto the path to enlightenment is to understand that there's nothing that you would be interested to believe. You should never believe anything related to the teachings of the Buddha. If you have belief, you're not going to know what's true or false about how to get to the enlightened mental state. You are going to need to be able to learn, reflect, and practice in order to be able to train the mind. You can't just believe your way to enlightenment. You're not going to be able to meditate your way to enlightenment. You're going to need to be able to learn teachings, reflect on them to independently verify them, and then practice them to be able to see the truth and be able to transform the mind and eliminate the pollutions of the mind. The Four Noble Truths is going to provide you the opportunity to be able to see what the problem is in the unenlightened mind, the cause of that problem, the elimination of it, and the path forward. And this is going to help you awaken to the wisdom of the Buddha. The Buddha taught the natural laws of existence. When your mind is experiencing sadness, anger, frustration, and other discontent feelings, it's struggling in the world. And this is because it lacks wisdom of the natural laws of existence. And you'll naturally make unwise 
wise decisions that lead to unwholesome results. But when you cultivate wisdom through learning, reflecting, to independently verify and practice, then with that wisdom, you can make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. And we've been doing exactly the same thing in the past related to the natural law of gravity. With the natural law of gravity, we really struggled with this early in our life. When we were one year old, two years old, maybe five, eight years old, we really struggled with the natural law of gravity. We fell down, we hit our elbow, we hit our head, we busted our knees, we knocked over important things that broke, we knocked over glasses of water and milk and other things like this because we really struggled with this natural law of gravity because we didn't have the wisdom. So we made unwise decisions that led to unwholesome results. But slowly but surely, we gradually awoke. We learned about the natural law of gravity, we reflected on it and saw the truth for ourselves, and we practiced getting our balance and trying to understand this natural law more and more to the point where our practice developed, where now we function in the world with ease because the mind is fully awake to this natural law of gravity. We make wiser decisions with that wisdom that has led to more wholesome outcomes, that we don't fall down the way we used to as a child. So we've been gradually working to awaken to this natural law of gravity for the first part of our life. And now we're at the point where we can climb a ladder, we can get on airplanes, we can ride bicycles or motorbikes and things like this because we fully awoke to this natural law of gravity. We no longer struggle and have difficulties related to this natural law. Well, the same thing needs to occur with the natural laws of existence, that there's these natural laws that affect us whether we're aware of it or not. Just like that natural law of gravity affected us whether we were aware of it or not, it wasn't until we had wisdom of it that we were able to make wiser decisions. And the same thing is true about these natural laws of existence that the Buddha is teaching, that you're affected by these natural laws whether you're aware of them or not. And the more aware of them that you are, the more wisdom that you've cultivated through learning, reflecting, and practicing, you'll naturally make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome outcomes. But when you lack wisdom, you'll make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome outcomes. And this is where one will struggle and have difficulties in life. And we've all experienced that through the struggles and difficulties of life. But what you're looking to do on this path is not believe anything that you're learning, reflecting, and practicing. You're not following the Buddha. You're not following me. You're not believing what I say. But through this learning, reflecting, and practicing, you're gaining wisdom. And I'm going to help you to do that today as you get started with establishing right view. I'm going to teach you something to help you learn it. I'm going to show you how to reflect on it to independently verify that it's true. And then I'm going to teach you how to practice it so that then you can transform your mind and experience more and more peace and more and more joy of this enlightened mind. Because the enlightened mind doesn't experience any anger. There's no sadness or frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy. All the discontent feelings are completely eliminated from the mind. You're not even in a bad mood any longer. You're going to have focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. And your personal professional relationships can really blossom and grow and be conducted with ease. And this all starts with establishing right view, which is what I'm going to help you to do today. So as I mentioned, as you have questions, feel free to ask any and all questions that you like by putting those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly.
So the first thing to talk about as it relates to helping you establish right view and understanding the Four Noble Truths is to understand the three universal truths. We call them the three universal truths and the Four Noble Truths because the Buddha knows that they were truth. I know that they're truth and other people know that they're truth as well. But you're going to need to know that these are truth. And that's why you're learning, reflecting and practicing and not believing. So this first universal truth, the universal truth of impermanence is explaining to you that things are constantly changing. There's something called a conditioned object that arises, that changes and fades away. Pretty much everything in the world around you is all impermanent. Everything you can see, everything you hear, everything you smell, everything you taste, everything that comes in contact with the physical body, and everything that goes through the mind. These are all impermanent. They arise, they change, and they fade away. Everything in the world around you is impermanent. These are called conditioned objects. Then there's something called an unconditioned object that doesn't arise, it doesn't change, and it doesn't fade away. Enlightenment is that way. It's an unconditioned object because the mind is purified and unconditioned. The qualities of the enlightened mind, they don't arise, they don't change, and they don't fade away. It's permanent. And same thing with the universal truths and the Four Noble Truths, these natural laws of existence that the Buddha taught. Because the Buddha explained these natural laws that existed during his lifetime, these natural laws are the same exact natural laws that exist now. His teachings are timeless. People's memories and the books and the way people describe his teachings have changed, but the actual natural laws themselves haven't changed. And that's why you can learn, reflect, and practice and see the truth for yourself. But all these things around you are constantly changing. They arise, they change, and they fade away. These are called conditioned objects. Now, this is a little bit of the learning on the universal truth of impermanence, but now you would like to start reflecting on this to try to independently verify it for yourself. And the way that you try to independently verify this is you look around the world and you see if there's something you can find that's permanent. If you can find something that's permanent, you've disproven this. Look around the world around you in these material objects. Can you find something that's permanent? And what I suggest people do is they start with something that they're very familiar with, like the human body. The human body, you're very familiar with this. So you can look at this and you can decide, is this human body permanent? Meaning it's been exactly the same your entire life and it never changes. Or is this human body impermanent? Meaning that it's constantly changing. So you ask yourself, is it permanent or impermanent? And of course, you're probably going to say that it's impermanent. It's constantly changing. Our hair is growing. Our teeth grew in. They fell out. Then they grew in some more. Then we get cavities. Our skin complexion changes. The texture and colors of our hair changes. The color of our skin might change. Our physical body changes where we get taller. We might get some fat here and there, right? Our body is constantly changing from the time of conception when the egg and sperm came together. The body has been constantly changing since then. Then you look at things like your relationships. Ask yourself, are your relationships permanent or impermanent? Are the people that are in your life the same exact people that have always been in your life? That would be permanence impermanent relationships would mean people have been coming and going in and out of your life throughout your life. That's impermanence. So would you say your relationships are permanent or impermanent? 
And what you'll probably come back with is that they are impermanent. And then things like your bank account. Is your bank account permanent or impermanent? If it's permanent, it's exact same balance all the time. It never changes. If it's impermanent, it means it's going up and down and up and down. Some people go down, down, down. Some people go up, up, up. But nonetheless, there's this impermanence where it's going up and down, up and down. This is the natural laws of existence, namely the universal truth of impermanence. Is the weather permanent or impermanent? Is the weather exactly the same all the time or does it change? It's impermanent. We could go on and on and on and you might need to do this. You might need to walk down the street and look at the sidewalk or look at the paint on buildings and see different things around you. You're walking down the street and the wind's blowing, but then the wind stops. That's impermanence. You're walking down the street and it's pretty quiet, but then you hear a bird chirping. That's impermanence because first it was quiet, then the bird was chirping. So you can go through the world and you can see for yourself that all these things around you are impermanent and you can independently verify this. And it becomes very important to understand this universal truth as you understand the Four Noble Truths, which I'm going to explain to you here in a bit. This is a building block to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. The second universal truth is the universal truth of discontentedness. This is explaining to you what the unenlightened mind is experiencing. Some people translate this as suffering. The original teachings of the Buddha are in the Pali language, and the word that he used there is dukkha. And if you've studied the teachings of the Buddha in other places, or if you've read books or things like this, you might see the word suffering being used here. I don't use that word. I use the word discontent, discontented, or discontentedness to explain this. So I'm going to explain to you what it is, and then I'll circle back and explain to you why I don't use the word suffering. So when the Buddha talks about dukkha, he explains three feelings, a pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neither painful nor pleasant. And he explains that the unenlightened mind is essentially experiencing these three feelings. The pleasant feelings are things like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. The painful feelings are things like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. These are very painful to experience. And then there's neither painful nor pleasant. I put boredom and loneliness here, but some people say that's quite painful for them. So you could put that in the painful category if you like. But maybe something like shyness is a good example for you. That it's not painful and it's not pleasant. It's neither painful nor pleasant. Or if somebody you don't know came and sat really close to you, like on a bus or a train or something like this, and your body was touching their body, you might say it's not painful, it's not pleasant, it's neither painful nor pleasant. The mind is kind of dissatisfied or feeling uncomfortable. So these are the three feelings that an unenlightened mind is going to experience. And these are conditioned feelings, meaning there's going to be some condition that is met and then this feeling is going to be formed in the mind. So for example, you might wake up and go outside and you see that it's sunny. And when you see it's sunny outside, you might get happy and excited and elated because you're going to get to go outside and play and spend time with your friends going hiking or go to the park or something like this. Then you go take a shower and you come out and now it's raining. So now you feel frustrated or angry. These are what's called conditioned feelings. Based on the condition of the sun, 
you experienced happiness. You allowed the mind to experience this conditioned feeling based on the condition of the sun. But because the sun is not permanent, the feeling of happiness is not permanent either. That feeling arose, it changed, and it faded away. And when that condition of the sun is no longer met, then the mind moves to this anger, or frustration, or sadness, where an enlightened being doesn't experience that because their mind is unconditioned. They don't have conditioned feelings. An enlightened being, when they wake up in the morning, they're already happy, they're already joyful. Then when they get up, they go see that it's sunny outside. It's like, oh, sweet, I'm gonna go outside, go to the park, go hiking, spend some time with friends. This will be outstanding, wonderful. And then you go take a shower and you come out and you see that it's now raining. An enlightened being, they're going to maintain their joy. They're going to maintain their happiness. They're just going to make another plan because they understand impermanence that, okay, it's raining outside. So that means maybe I'm going to go to the mall. Maybe I'll go to a restaurant, invite my friends to go eat, or maybe I'll stay home and read a book. You'll just change your plans because of impermanence. You can't permanently go outside. There's going to be times when the weather is such that you can't go outside. So when you're experiencing the unenlightened mental state, you will have conditioned feelings where the mind's going up and down and up and down and up and down. But as an enlightened being, you can maintain your joy and your happiness at all times. In the unenlightened state, there needs to be this condition met, this condition met, this condition met, this condition met, and then you'll be happy. If your mom calls you, if your bank account is this, if your boss does this, if your coworkers do this, if these conditions are met, then the mind will be happy. That's what the unenlightened mind is experiencing. But when those conditions aren't met, then the mind moves to the painful feelings of sadness, anger, or some other discontent feeling. In the enlightened mental state, all those conditions are eliminated. You can maintain your peacefulness and joy whether your mom calls you or not no matter what your bank account balance is or not, whether it's sunny or rainy outside or not, it doesn't matter. You can maintain your joy and your happiness no matter what. So this is what the universal truth of discontentedness is explaining is that the unenlightened mind is going to be experiencing these conditioned feelings. And now to independently verify it, you understand that your mind is unenlightened, so now you Think about the various feelings that you've had over the course of your life through your own direct experience. And now you ask yourself, does this explain what you experience? Do you experience pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant? Is there any feeling that you experience that doesn't fit into one of these three categories? Because if there's a feeling that you experience that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, it's not a universal truth. So when we get to the question period, if you feel like there's a feeling that doesn't fit into one of these three categories, just let me know and we can talk about it. Now, as I mentioned, some people refer to this as suffering and they talk about the Buddha taught to eliminate suffering. Well, if you talk about suffering and you describe this as suffering, in my opinion, this explains the painful feelings. When you experience sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, or other feelings, you might say that you're suffering in that situation. But when you see that it's sunny outside and you get all excited and happy or elated, you probably wouldn't say you're suffering. 
Or if that person you don't know comes and sits next to you and your body's touching theirs and you feel that displeasure, that unsatisfactoriness, you probably wouldn't say you were suffering in that situation. So if you use the word suffering here, it's only explaining 33% of what the Buddha taught. And you're missing 66% of his teachings on this very important topic. And if you're missing 66% of somebody's teachings, you wouldn't be able to very readily get to the goal of enlightenment if you're missing 66% of what a teacher is teaching. So here it's important to let go of using the language of the past, no longer clinging to the word suffering and using the word discontent, discontented, and discontentedness. This will fully represent the full spectrum of feelings that are experienced in the unenlightened mind. Then there's this universal truth of non-self. This is where the Buddha is providing you a solution to one of the individual pollutions that he discovered in the mind. He discovered these 10 individual pollutions referred to as the 10 fetters. What a fetter is, is it's like a shackle and a chain and a ball around your ankle that's keeping you trapped like a prisoner. So these fetters, these pollutions, these defilements, these taints, these 10 individual pollutions in the mind, it's keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state, much like that shackle, chain, and that ball. And when you get rid of these pollutions out of the mind, that's when the mind experiences the enlightened mental state. So the very first pollution on the list of the 10 fetters is called personal existence view. I'll explain what this is, and then I'll explain the solution, which is the universal truth of non-self. The pollution of personal existence view is where the unenlightened mind is falsely believing, having the misperception, the misunderstanding, or the confusion that this body and or this mind is you. It's who you are as a person. So now there's a certain self-image that the mind is wanting to project in the world or a certain self-identity that the mind is clinging to and holding on to the world and wanting to be perceived this way in the world. So as long as the mind is clinging to a self-image or self-identity to this physical body or this mind, wanting to be perceived in the world a certain way, when you experience agreeable things related to your self-image or your self-identity, you will get pleasant feelings, but they're conditioned pleasant feelings. And now when you hear disparaging or degrading things related to your self-image or self-identity, you will experience painful feelings. So let me give you some examples about these. Your self-image, maybe you want to look a certain way, you want to be perceived a certain way. If somebody compliments you on your appearance, you might get these pleasant feelings where you feel so great because somebody's complimented you. But now it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading or disparaging about your physical appearance. And you can't control what other people say or do around you. So as long as your mind is clinging to this body, wanting to hear agreeable things, now when you get those conditioned pleasant feelings and those conditions change, that now somebody's not talking to you in an agreeable way, they're talking in a degrading, disparaging way about your self-image, now you will experience those painful feelings. 
you know, you may not decide to associate with people who are degrading and disparaging. You might choose to move on from that relationship. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're just talking about why is the mind experiencing discontentedness in this situation? It's because the mind's clinging or holding on to this body thinking that this body is who you are as a person. And now if you have agreeable or disagreeable contact, you will either experience pleasant feelings or painful feelings. Some other examples might be if you've ever spilled ice cream, like chocolate ice cream or pizza sauce or spaghetti sauce on your clothes, and you were embarrassed. This is because of your personal existence view, where the mind wants to be perceived in the world a certain way. And when you weren't being perceived that way, you then experience these painful feelings. Or if you experienced uh, where you maybe got a wrinkle and your mind was shaken up by that, or there was a mole or a freckle or a pimple in a place that you didn't particularly like, or if you had a gray hair or you started losing your hair and noticing that you're going bald, perhaps your mind was shaken up by that when you saw these things. Or maybe you got a little bit of fat here and there and now your mind is shaken up by that. This is what the unenlightened mind does when it has personal existence view and it wants to be perceived in the world a certain way. Then if you have self-identity where the mind is clinging to a certain identity in the mind, where I am American, or I am Canadian, or I am a Brit, or I am an Aussie, or I am Brazilian, or any of these other I am's I am's, like your culture, your ethnicity, the country where you're born, maybe your job or occupation, maybe even a role like a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or girlfriend. If you've identified with this as who you are as a person, now you'll open yourself up to discontent feelings. Because if somebody says to you that all Americans or all Canadians or all people from Brazil or whatever country you're from, everybody is so loving and kind. If this is how you identify in the mind, you'll experience these pleasant feelings. But now when those conditions change, maybe you're in a restaurant and you overhear somebody at the next table talking disparagingly about your nationality or your ethnicity or your sexual orientation or some other thing that your mind is identifying with. And now you'll experience painful feelings in that situation when somebody's being degrading and disparaging. And once again, you can't control what other people say or do. All you can do is control your own mind. So training your mind to realize non-self is what will help you. In a situation where you've had a certain job, where maybe I am a police officer, or I am a lawyer, or I am a doctor, or I am a food server, or any other occupation that you might have identified with. When you no longer work in that job, maybe you're retired, maybe you lost your job, maybe you quit, maybe the company went out of business or laid people off, you might have really struggled and feel like a part of you is missing, like a part of yourself is gone because you identified with that role of being an employee of that particular occupation that you now struggled in the world. Or if you were a boyfriend or girlfriend or a husband or wife and the relationship ended, you might have wanted to hurry up and get right back into another relationship because you struggled during that time when you were single. Your mind identified with I am a boyfriend or I am a girlfriend 
or I am a husband or I am a wife. And now when you're no longer in that role and your mind is not identifying with that role, and now you might feel like a part of you is missing and you want to hurry up and get back into another relationship. So this is what happens when the mind has personal existence view. And there's other things as well that's going on as it relates to this personal existence view. This is just an introduction and some examples for you. So the Buddha is giving you the solution here with the universal truth of non-self and he's explaining to you that there is no self, that this body nor this mind is who you are as a person. And now you can start to train your mind to let go and stop clinging and holding on to this body or this mind or this self-image or the self-identity of who you are and thinking that this is who you are. And now by letting that go, your mind can reside more peaceful and more joyful. So this universal truth of non-self is helping you to be able to see the truth in this. But so far, you've only been learning. So now let's start doing the reflection to be able to independently verify this, whether it's true or not. The way that you independently verify this is you start thinking about how you viewed yourself when you were a child, a teenager, early adulthood, and then maybe now. That now, as you are looking at those different times in your life, that you think, okay, how did you view yourself when you were a child, when you were a teenager, early adulthood, and then now? Has it been exactly the same? Or the way you viewed yourself, has it been constantly changing? And of course, it's been changing because there is no permanent self. Then you ask yourself, where are you? Point to yourself. Where are you? And an individual might point to their chest or to their head. But then you look and you say, what am I really pointing to? What you're really pointing to is a shirt. This shirt, is it you? Is that who you are? If you take off the shirt and you hold it up in your hand and you point to it, is that who you are, the shirt? Of course not. That's not you. So you throw away the shirt and you ask yourself, where are you? And then someone might point to their chest once again. And now they're pointing to skin. And you take the skin off and you hold that up in your hand. Is that you? Is that who you are? Is that the person that you are, the skin? Of course not. That's not you. That's not David. That's not Amber. That's not Steve. That's not Sophia. That's not Francis. That's not who you are. So let's throw away the skin, right? Well, where are you? Someone might point, right? Well, okay, we've got muscles. We've got rib bones. We've got organs and tissue and fluid and different things. None of those bits and pieces and parts are you, but the mind is falsely attributing that these things are you. And then here's another way that you can independently verify this. If your arm was amputated and you no longer have one arm and a hand, that that's now gone, that instead of having two hands and two arms, you just have one hand and one arm. Are you less of a person because you only have one hand and one arm? And when I ask this question to students, they will typically say, no, I'm not less of a person just because I have one hand and one arm. So if you answered, no, you're not less of a person, then intellectually, your mind understands that this body is not you. It's not who you are. But the mind is confused. It's having this misunderstanding. It's having this confusion or this misperception that this body is you, even though intellectually, 
you might have said, no, you're not less of a person because you have one hand and one arm. So intellectually, you can understand that you're not less of a person, but the way your mind functions due to its confusion and misunderstanding is that you think that this body is you and or this mind is you. And now when you hear agreeable or disagreeable things, then the mind either experiences conditioned pleasant feelings or painful feelings. So there's a solution here to realize non-self and train the mind to realize with 100% certainty that there is no self here. And this is what we're going to be exploring deeply in chapter 16 of this program and of this first book that I share so that you can start to realize non-self. So let me pause here and open up to any questions that you guys might have related to the three universal truths. And remember, these are building blocks to help you understand the Four Noble Truths where you can have this breakthrough. So it's important for you to understand these. You can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see those and answer your questions. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you like. Looks like we have a question here from Amber in Zoom. She says, regarding personal existence view, if someone makes a negative observation of us, should we think about whether we are legitimately doing hurtful things to others? Yes, that's always wise. That particularly as you are getting going on the path because there's certain things that you are doing that are harmful. But somebody's perception of harm might be different than true reality, right? Like let's just say, like I know you have a daughter, Amber. Let's just say your daughter asks you for some money to go buy some snacks and you say, no, I'm sorry, you can't have any money. And now your daughter might say, oh, mom, you know, you're hurting me or you're rude or you're disrespectful or maybe this is her craving where she really wants money and she's perceiving what you're doing as having harmed her. But in true reality, all you've done is said, no, I'm not going to give you any money. And you've done that maybe polite and kind. So in some situations, an individual can tell you that you're being hurtful and harmful. In reality, it's just their own craving that they're experiencing painful feelings and they're attributing those painful feelings to you because they have wrong view. So it's always wise to look inward and be introspective and analyze what it is that you're doing, but you need to do that through the natural laws of existence rather than just solely relying on what somebody's sharing with you. Because if you just go around trying to please everybody, you'll bounce around like a ping pong ball or a pinball machine trying to constantly please and do whatever everybody else wants you to do. So this is where sometimes you might reach out to your teacher and you say, you know, my daughter shares with me that I'm being hurtful because I did this and I did that and I didn't give her money and here's the situation and am I practicing in a way that is harmful and producing unwholesome results and then you get feedback on that and now you get wisdom. So yes, you should be introspective and you should look at the things as people are sharing things with you, but then always make sure you're looking at the natural laws of existence because people's minds are polluted with their own craving, anger, and ignorance, and they're not gonna be able to see clearly of whether or not you're truly causing harm or not. It might just be harmful to them based on their perceptions and what they want from you. All right, so Steve has some questions here. Steve is asking, the concept of non-self is one of the most difficult for me if the mind is not me or the body is not me, what is me? If there is no me, who or what is at this Zoom meeting? Okay, so 
what you're doing is your mind is still grasping for itself. You're still wanting to know what is me, right? So this body is not you. This mind is not you. There is no you. This concept of a you doesn't exist. The universal truth of non-self is the truth that this body nor this mind is you. So there is a physical body that is in existence. There is a mind that is in existence. And these two things have come together. And we call this a person or a human being. The Buddha refers to it as a person. So there's this person that is the combination of the body and the mind. But those things aren't you. It's not who you are. But because the mind has this personal existence view, it might keep grasping and saying, you know, what am I then? If I'm not the body and I'm not the mind, then what am I? You're nothing. The mind is just still grasping for itself and trying to cling to something. You've got to get to the point where you realize that this body nor this mind is you. There is no you there. That's the exact words of the Buddha. He says, there is no you there. But it's important to understand that there is a body, there is a mind, it's come together for this existence. We call that a person or a human being. So now it's wise to take care of this physical body, like personal hygiene, good exercise habits, good eating habits, things like this. And it's wise to take care of this mind and train it and purify it. But when you start clinging to this body and thinking this is who you are, or you start clinging to the self-identity in the mind, thinking that's who you are, that's where you're going to run into difficulties with discontentedness. So you need to let go of these things and just realize there is an existence, but this isn't you, this physical body, nor this mind. And if you need more help with that, Steve, you can ask follow-up questions if you like. Okay, we have some questions coming in here on YouTube. It says, good day, sir. Are your desires, wants, and cravings yours coming from the self? The personal existence view is a craving. It is a desire. It's a longing and yearning. It's the mind clinging to the idea or the concept that this body or this mind is you. So that is part of the craving. The main part of craving, desire, attachment that the Buddha talks about in terms of the 10 fetters is what's called central desire. This is where the mind is longing and yearning through the sense bases of the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself. The mind is wanting, craving, longing, yearning, agreeable contact. You want to see permanently agreeable things or hear permanently agreeable things or smell agreeable odors or taste agreeable flavors or have physical objects come in contact with the body that are permanently agreeable or mental objects that are permanently agreeable. So that's what the mind is doing. The mind is longing and yearning through these sense bases. This is going to be explained in more simple terms in the Four Noble Truths, but the self is part of that clinging, part of that craving. The personal existence view is the mind craving and clinging to the body and the mind, thinking that this is who you are. And you need to get liberated from this craving and clinging in order to get to the peace and joy. It's just one of the cravings that the mind needs to be able to let go of. And the Buddha is giving you this teaching on the universal truth of non-self to be able to help you let go of that craving. Okay, I'm going to check Facebook and see if we have any questions coming in here. All right, it doesn't look like we have any questions on Facebook. So I'm going to keep on going into the further topic of what we have to discuss today. 
So now there's one more thing that I need to teach you as a building block to help you understand the Four Noble Truths. This is craving, desire, attachment, the expectations, the wants, the holding, the grasping, the clinging. These words are defined in a unique way within Buddhist teachings to be able to help you understand what the mind is doing. The craving, desire, attachment, the expectations, the wants, the holding, the grasping. This is a mental longing for something with a strong eagerness. The mind pulling in the direction for the objects of its affection. This is how the mind is longing and yearning. Thinking the next new shiny object waiting around the corner is going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. So you chase it and chase it and chase it and chase it. If you've ever been in the mall and you saw a brand new pair of shoes or a brand new purse, a brand new phone, a brand new computer, a brand new video game, maybe a piece of clothes or something, and you're like, oh, I just got to have that. I got to have that. I want it. I want it. I want it so badly. That's the craving, desire, attachment. It feels like the mind is pulling towards this thing. So if you've experienced this, you can look over the course of your life and you should be able to see that your mind has experienced this. If you're having trouble to understand what a craving, desire, attachment is, let me know. It's not the object itself. It's not the object of the purse or the shoes or the phone or the technology. It's the longing and yearning for it, the mind chasing after it. And there's a whole spectrum here that on the one side of the spectrum, you got this strong eagerness. The mind's chasing after something. Maybe you're chasing after a new job. You're chasing a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, or you're chasing a new car or a new house or a bigger house or a bigger paycheck or something like that. The mind can just really be almost obsessed with it. But then there's lighter versions of these cravings that are just kind of like kind of things you want. And if you get it, you get happy. And if you don't get it, you get annoyed or frustrated, right? So there's this spectrum of craving, desire, attachments. Here, I'm describing it in the extreme so that you can understand what it is, but then understand that there's lesser versions of this as well, okay? So this is the craving, desire, attachment. So now we're gonna go on to talk about the Four Noble Truths and help you to understand what these are so that then you can have this breakthrough to understanding what's causing the discontent feelings. The first Noble Truth is explaining that everyone that is in the unenlightened state will experience discontentedness. These are those conditioned feelings where the mind goes up and down and up and down. The conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant. This is the problem that the Buddha discovered, that the mind is experiencing these conditioned feelings. And when your mind is experiencing conditioned feeling, you can't be calm. Your mind is shaken up and you will make unwise decisions. So if you've ever been so happy, excited, elated that you tripped and fell or you dropped something or your mind wasn't quite clear, this is because of the conditioned feeling that the mind was unable to make a wise decision. And the same thing occurs with painful feelings of things like anger, sadness, frustration, and others, as well as neither painful nor pleasant. That when the mind's shy or you're having displeasure, the mind can experience this shaking up where now you have difficulties making wise decisions. So this is the problem in the first noble truth. The second noble truth is explaining the cause of this problem. Discontentedness is caused by our own cravings, desires, attachments, because the mind wants everything to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So I'm going to say that a few times, and I'm going to give you some examples to help you understand it. 
discontentedness, those conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, are being caused by cravings, desires, attachments. Because the mind wants things to be permanent when everything in the world is impermanent. So it's that mental longing and strong eagerness, the cravings, the desires, the attachments, the longing, the yearning. It's not the object itself. It's how the mind is chasing after it that is causing these discontent feelings. If you get what you want, you get pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, exhilaration, euphoria. But if you don't get what you want, Based on those cravings, if you don't get what you want, you get the painful feelings like sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety. The mind is experiencing this discontentedness because of its cravings, its longings, its yearnings. And you can't permanently get what you want. So therefore, you can't maintain your happiness. So if you wake up and you see it's sunny outside and you get happy because it's sunny, that happiness is going to arise it's going to change and then it's going to fade away because it is impermanent, because it's based on the condition of craving, desire, attachment. The mind is craving the sunshine. And then when the sun goes away and now it's raining or some other weather, now you experience the painful feelings. This is what the unenlightened mind is doing. So let me give you some more examples. If you were ever in a relationship where you first got together with a partner, and now when you guys first got together, you might have experienced all these conditioned pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, or some other feeling. Because there's somebody that's sending you text messages, they're calling you, they're taking you out to the movies, maybe you're going out to eat together, you might even be having intimate contact together. So those conditioned pleasant feelings are based on the condition that you have a boyfriend or girlfriend, and now they're showing you some kind of affection or attention. And now, as time goes on and this relationship ends for whatever reason, and you experience that impermanence, the unenlightened mind doesn't like that. It doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. So now it experiences anger or sadness or frustration or loneliness or boredom or some other discontent feeling because it was craving and longing and yearning for this relationship to be permanent. And this relationship was always impermanent, but the unenlightened mind just didn't understand that because the unenlightened mind doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. It's craving permanence, and it thinks that this relationship is permanent. Because even if you guys were together for the rest of your life, more likely than not, one of you guys would have died first. And if your mind's craving permanence, you would have had a lot of discontentedness in that situation. So this relationship was always impermanent, but the unenlightened mind didn't understand that. So one of the ways to say this is that the mind is craving permanence, but another way to say it is the unenlightened mind does not like impermanence. It does not like change. And when things start to change, your mind will struggle with that and you'll experience the painful feelings. Another example is if you had a car, a brand new car, and this brand new car, you saved up a lot of money, you went to the store, the dealership, you purchase this car, you drive this car off the lot, you're feeling so great, you're feeling so proud, you've got all these pleasant feelings because you've got the car of your dreams, you're driving around town, your friends see you, they think you're so successful because you got this brand new car, and now you park it at a store and you go inside and you come out and there's a scratch on the car, and now you get frustrated or angry or irritated. 
it's not the scratch that's causing that. It's not even the person who caused the scratch. They're not causing your anger, your frustration, or any other discontent feeling. It's the mind craving permanence and wanting this car to be permanently beautiful when it's not possible for this car to be permanently beautiful because it's in an impermanent world. We're not talking about what's right or wrong or what's wise or unwise because it'd be wonderful if nobody ever scratched your car, but you don't live in that world. That's a world of permanence. If nobody ever scratched your car and your car stayed exactly the same paint color the entire time you had it, this would be permanence, but it's not possible for that to occur. You're going to experience a scratch or the fading of the paint, or you're gonna to need to change the tires or the oil or the window washers. This is all impermanence. And as long as your mind is craving for this car to look permanently beautiful, when the upholstery gets ripped or the paint fades or somebody scratches the car or it gets a little bit of dirt on it, your mind is gonna experience painful feelings. So here you can see through these examples and through the learning that you're doing that the second noble truth is explaining to you that you're causing your own discontent feelings. Your mind is causing it itself. It's not other people. Because what the unenlightened mind is going to tend to want to do is it's going to want to blame other people for your painful feelings. And because of that, the mind then has wrong view. If you have wrong view, you're blaming other people for your discontent feelings. And now you either push people away out of your life. This is called aversion. And when you push people out of your way, you think that that's going to solve the problem. Because when the mind has wrong view, it's falsely attributing your painful feelings to this external thing, to this person or this situation. And you will try to push that away, thinking that solves the problem. But it doesn't solve the problem because you keep getting angry, you keep getting irritated about the next thing, you keep getting frustrated or lonely or bored over and over and over again. So that pushing away, that aversion doesn't solve the problem. Or with wrong view, what an individual might do is become bitter and harsh and hostile or aggressive towards somebody. And now that person might choose to leave out of your life. Or you might put your expectations on somebody, trying to control them and getting them to do things your way. And if you can just get people to do things your way, then the mind thinks that somehow it's solved the problem. But it didn't because all that's happening is your cravings are getting fulfilled. And now you're putting your pressure on this person and they're going to feel pressured and they might choose to leave out of your life. So as long as you have wrong view, you will push people away. You will be bitter and harsh towards people or you will put your expectations on people thinking that this is going to solve the problem. But when you establish right view, through the second noble truth, you can see that your mind is causing your own discontent feelings. And the way that you independently verify this through your reflection is you start thinking about recent times when your mind has been discontent. Maybe this morning, maybe yesterday, maybe last week. You look at that situation that occurred and maybe in that situation before you learned this, you might have been looking for someone to blame. You might have even been harsh or bitter or hostile with someone or putting your expectations on someone. But now with this new wisdom, think about that same situation and what occurred. What was it that your mind wanted that it didn't get? Now remember, at that time, you might have been trying to blame somebody, but now you have some new wisdom to be able to look at this situation with new eyes. And now look at this situation. What was it that your mind wanted that you didn't get 
And when you didn't get it, your mind got angry or frustrated or agitated. And if you can't see the truth in it, let me know. Because students have shared different things with me over the years that they couldn't see what was actually causing their discontentedness. They thought that somebody else was causing it. The example that I typically give is there was a student one time who shared with me that they came home from work and their wife had their house full of a craft project and there was things all over the house and they instantly got frustrated or angry or irritated and they're like how did my mind cause this i wasn't even home when she put all these things all over the house how did my mind cause its own frustration when i left from work the house looked one way and when i came back from work it looked a different way and i didn't cause that i'm not the one who put all the things all over the house Well, what was occurring here is this individual's mind was craving for the house to look a certain way. When they left from work, it looked a certain way, and that's the way their mind was craving for this house to permanently look. And when they came back, they saw the house look different. There was this impermanence that the mind didn't like. And now, when it saw all this craft project all over the house, the mind became frustrated and angry and irritated. And this is the mind causing its own discontentedness because it was craving permanence. And just like the house isn't going to permanently look a certain way, it may be beautiful the way that they wanted it to look with things in a certain place. With this craft project all over the house, that's not permanent either. Eventually, the wife is going to put that away or this person might have helped the wife put this away. So this is what the mind is doing in the unenlightened state because it's lacking wisdom. It's craving permanence. It doesn't understand the universal truth of impermanence. And then you can eliminate all of these discontent feelings when you understand the third noble truth. The elimination of discontentedness is possible by eliminating cravings, desires, attachments. If you can train the mind to eliminate the longing, the yearning, the craving, the desire, then you can get to a point where the mind no longer experiences discontent feelings. And the way that we do that is with breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. When you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, you're focused on the breath with the mind. And when the mind moves off the breath, you're cutting that off, letting it go, and bringing the mind back to the breath. You're gaining this discipline or this control. You're cultivating the wholesome qualities of mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness is awareness of mind where you have awareness of the mind and concentration is focus and clarity of the mind. So when breathing mindfulness meditation, as you're training more and more over the months and years, you're cultivating this awareness of mind and concentration that in daily life, where you see the mind longing and yearning for that new pair of shoes or that new technology or some other thing, you can observe that the mind's longing and yearning and you can cut it off and let it go if you've been training your mind that way. You might be at the mall realizing that the mind's craving and longing yearning for a brand new pair of shoes, thinking that this external thing is going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. And you can stop and ask yourself, how many pairs of shoes can I wear at one time? Maybe you've got 30 pairs of shoes at home. What is one more pair of shoes going to do for you? Right. So if you have mindfulness and concentration developed through breathing mindfulness meditation and you're able to easily cut things off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath in meditation, then in daily life, you can cut things off and let it go. So your training is in meditation, but also outside of meditation, you're training your mind as well. 
And then we practice generosity, which is the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any given situation. Your time, your effort, your energy, your resources, without any expectation of anything in return. You can do things like holding the door for somebody on your way into the store. But you got to be careful because the mind might have the expectation that this person is going to say thank you. And then when they don't say thank you, you'll get frustrated because you're craving your want, your expectation, your desire hasn't been met. And now when they didn't say thank you and they just walked in, your mind gets discontent because you're craving a permanent thank you. And it's not possible for everyone to say thank you. So if you practice generosity, you need to do it because it's the wise thing to do. It's a wholesome activity. It's enhancing your mind. Because in the unenlightened state, when there's craving, desire, attachment, the mind oftentimes is very selfish. You hold on to things very tightly, wanting things to be mine, mine, mine. My money, my car, my computer, my clothes, my food, mine, 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 mine. But when you practice generosity, you train to give and share and you start noticing this interconnectivity of all beings and you no longer are just pursuing your selfish pursuits that you understand that your ability to share and to give and to help others, that this is helpful in the world and it enhances your mind. And so rather than just going around pursuing your own selfish pursuits, you sometimes do things for other people that would be beneficial and helpful. And this trains your mind to let go and no longer have craving, desire, attachment. So this is one of the things that you do in order to train the mind to eliminate cravings, desires, attachments, breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity. But then it's the fourth noble truth that explains the complete elimination of discontentedness because you wouldn't be able to just practice breathing mindfulness, meditation, and generosity and get to enlightenment. There's an entire path of eight individual steps or eight individual factors that the Buddha taught that you need to dial in closer and closer in your life in order to train the mind to get to enlightenment. This is called the Eightfold Path, where there's eight individual steps organized into three sections, wisdom, moral conduct, and mental discipline. So right view is the very first part of getting on the path to enlightenment, where you establish right view. What right view is, is having the right view of the world that your mind is causing its own discontentedness. Wrong view would be to blame other people. So the more you can look inward and see for yourself that your mind is causing its own discontentedness, this is going to be very beneficial for you. So from now on, instead of blaming other people for your discontent feelings, sit down and have a conversation with yourself and look inward. When your mind is discontent, try to discover what are the cravings, desires, attachments that you're experiencing. And where you need help, you can reach out to your teacher and I will help you. Because just like you need to develop the ability to train the mind through meditation and you need to develop that skill, you're going to also need to develop the skill and the ability to look inward and be introspective and be able to identify your cravings, desires, attachments. Because when you can identify what they are, you can then eliminate them. The breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity is generalized training that you employ in order to soften up the mind and help it to eliminate your cravings, desires, attachments.
attachments. But when we get to chapter 13 of this book in this group learning program, I'm going to be teaching you some very specific skills and abilities to go in and surgically remove some of your cravings, desires, attachments. And when we get to chapter 17, I'm going to be helping you do that as well. There's some unique things you can do to eliminate your fears. But it all starts with right view, where you understand any feelings that you're experiencing is being caused by your own mind. This is part of the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. And then there's a moral conduct section where the Buddhist explaining to you the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result, the results of your decisions. Because if you're looking to get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, and where your life is also peaceful and joyful, as long as you're putting out harm through your speech or actions in your livelihood, this harm is going to come back to you. So the moral conduct is there to be able to support you in understanding the natural law of gamma so that now you can function in the world with this wisdom of the natural law, and then you won't be harming others, so harm won't come back to you. And then you can practice the mental discipline where you're able to control the mind through having train the mind and disciplining the mind. So these are the eight steps that you would need to learn. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I'm going to be teaching this to you next week using the words of the Buddha, methodically going through each individual step so that you can dial this in closer and closer into your life practice. This is your life practice. The title of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This is your life practice. The Eightfold Path is your life practice. So you're going to need to know this inside and out, backwards and forwards, up, down, left, right. An individual who's interested in getting to enlightenment is going to need to study this and revisit it multiple times throughout their journey to enlightenment to be sure they're dialing it in closer and closer. And that's why I'm teaching you now the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path here again at the beginning of the group learning program because I've already taught it about six or eight weeks ago, but now we're revisiting it again because it's that important that you really dial it in closer and closer. So I'm going to stop here because this is everything I have to share with you guys and see what questions you guys might have related to the Four Noble Truths and being able to learn them, reflect on them, and then practice them and be able to see the truth for yourself. So if you guys have questions, you can put it into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions that you might have. All right, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So you guys must be understanding this to a certain level of detail. And this can be helpful for you, as I mentioned, to revisit this. So the Four Noble Truths is something that I probably share a good three to five times in the group learning program as we go through different sections of the book in the program, because you really need to soak it into the mind and be reminded of this. Because it's one thing to intellectually understand it in a class like this, but it's a whole nother thing to be able to practice it in daily life that when the mind is angry or when it is frustrated, to be able to understand that you are causing those feelings yourself and having to sit down and be introspective. And as I mentioned, you can reach out and get help. You can ask questions in these classes. You can post questions in the Facebook group. You can send me private messages or you can schedule a personal guidance session and I will meet you in Zoom. If you're online, I'll meet you in Zoom. If you're here in Chiang Mai, I will meet you somewhere here in Chiang Mai if you like. So 
you're going to need to get help and learn how to identify these cravings because otherwise you wouldn't be able to eliminate them if you didn't know how to identify them. So next week in the group learning program on Sunday, I'm going to be sharing with you chapter five, which is the Eightfold Path. I'm going to be walking through step by step, helping you to understand what are each one of those steps. And today is all about right view. So next week, I'm not going to really be covering right view in much detail. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time on all those other steps, right intention through right concentration. And as you guys have questions on any of these steps, you can be asking those in the class. So if you'd like to read the chapter beforehand, that can be really helpful so that that way you can get all your questions asked during the class. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be doing the first part of a four-part series on Buddhist chanting, where I'm going to be teaching you guys how to do Buddhist chanting to ease the mind into meditation and out of meditation. And I'm going to be talking about all the different benefits that one can experience as a result of chanting and then how to actually do the chanting. So you're welcome to attend any of those classes. And remember that we always have the Pali Canon and English study group that you're welcome to join at any time as well. And I'm teaching these classes on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. And I'm live streaming them at all those times. So you can look at your local time zone and see what time those classes are. And you can attend either one or you can listen to the recording as well. So thank you all for joining. We'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.